You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So we talked about Cain and Abel last night, of course. We're going to shift gears, going to skip forward, still in Genesis, and we're going to talk about Jacob today. Um, I spent a lot of time with, with Jacob this last year. My next book, which is coming out this summer, is entitled Limping with God, and it takes the life of Jacob. It begins actually with his conception and then goes all the way through his death at the end of, in the end of Genesis. And it was a fantastic uh, journey that, that I put myself on to just walk through all the various stages and episodes of his life. Because it, it, if you don't know the life of Jacob very well, he is just, uh, he's, he's a colorful, uh, rascally, tricky character. who actually fits into kind of the, the literary mold of a lot of these tricksters. Uh, Loki, for instance, is, uh, if you're familiar with kind of the, the legends about him or the movies about him, he's, he's a trickster, right? He can take different shapes. He assumes disguises. And there's plenty of other, Tom Sawyer is kind of like that too. He's, he's, they're, they're wily. They, they kind of, they break the rules. They turn things upside down. They're able to get their way. They're, they're, they're wise in a, in a, in a worldly sort of way. So Jacob fits within that pattern. Well, anytime you have a trickster, you know it's going to be entertaining. <laughs> and Jacob certainly does not disappoint when it comes to entertaining. Because in one way or another, as you're reading through his, through his stories, there's, like, there's part of us that sort of admires him because he is so wily. He is he's so deceitful. He's able to get his own way. So he's entertaining in that sort of way. But he's also extremely frustrating. Because I keep wanting Jacob... I keep wanting God to just really lay into him. <laughs> like, did, did he get his way again? Again? It's like, God, would you please step in and administer some justice to this guy? Because he's, he's, he is breaking the rules. He's getting his way time after time. So when are you going to finally let him have it? So you keep anticipating that in the, in the story. And, and in a way, there is sort of a, a poetic justice in Jacob's life. You don't have this direct divine intervention. But for instance, God will send to Jacob another Jacob, another trickster by the name of Laban, who is simultaneously his uncle, boss, and father-in-law. I don't know if any of you are in that similar situation. No? Okay. Because if you are, I'd like to talk afterward, because that would be a great, <laughs> be, a, be a great story. Uh, but anyway, that, so that's Jacob. He's, a, he's just a fascinating, fascinating character. So uh, we don't have tons of time, and there's a ton of material about him. So we're just going to kind of pick and choose a little bit as to where we, where we focus on him. So let's begin just uh, with a few words about his, his conception, and then we'll, uh, we'll, get to, we'll get to his birth. Because his birth is significant. Actually, not so much his birth, uh, but what he does while he's being born, and then the name that is given to him as a result of this. Okay, so turn to Genesis 25. Extremely brief uh, recap of where are we, how we got to this point. First 12 chapters of Genesis, first 11 chapters of Genesis, really is kind of the you know this, this world history. You've got the flood, you've got uh, the Tower of Babel, you've got the genealogies and whatnot. But Genesis 12, after those first 11 chapters, begins to focus on a one man. 
And this one man, Abram, or Abraham, as his name is changed to, is kind of a new Adam. That is, God, God looks out over the entire human population and he pinpoints one guy. And he's going to use him to carry on the promise. This becomes significant because Abraham carries on the promise who then passes it on to Isaac. And then Isaac is going to pass it on to Jacob. Now, Jacob has a lot of options as to who he's going to pass it on to. He has a lot of sons, but it's going to be Judah eventually. So that's kind of where, we, where we, we've been in Genesis leading up to this point. So in, uh, in Genesis 25, we have the conception and birth of these, these two sons. It's kind of like the Cain and Abel again, right? We have twins who are being conceived. Now notice in Genesis 25, 22, Rebecca's pregnant and the children are struggling within her. They are ratzats within her in the Hebrew. They're they're jostling with each other. They're hitting each other. They're banging into each other. And she's confused because, first of all, she doesn't even know she has twins. Right? She doesn't know she's pregnant. So what's going on? So she goes to inquire of God. And God says to her, this is verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And, now, what comes after that? is ambiguous in the Hebrew. Your English translations will say, and the older shall serve the younger. That can actually also be translated, and the older, the younger shall serve. Grammatically, it can go either way. Now, we know, because we know the the history after this, how it should be translated, right? Because we know it's going to be the older who serves the younger. But did Rebecca know? That, that's the important point here. Did Rebecca know exactly what God meant? The reason this is important to, to ask is because judging by her actions after this, she interpreted it to mean that the older shall serve the younger. But there's a built-in ambiguity to this. So either the older shall serve the younger or the older the younger shall serve. Well, after her time of pregnancy is at the end, it says she delivered, she had twins in her womb, and we had the birth of two more twins. We had Cain and Abel, now we have Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out as the ugliest baby uh, to be recorded in the scriptures. <laughs> he's, uh, he's like a little ginger bear. He's just covered in, in red hair. Uh, interestingly, the only two places in the Bible where this particular Hebrew word is used, admoni, which can mean red or ruddy, uh, only two places are here, and then David. David is described as ruddy. Ruddy complexion or red hair, we're not sure, but he's an Esau-like character in that sort of way. So he's named Esau. He's the older, of course. So it's another Cain figure. Then, verse 26 is the, the, the important verse in this section. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Yaakov, Jacob. Isaac is 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So I'm guessing that if you have children, that when your children were born, it wasn't at that moment that you chose their names. Maybe some of you did. Maybe some of you still didn't know. But most of us, when we're going into the hospital, we have names picked out. Doesn't work that way in the Bible most of the time. 
In this particular case, it seems that based upon the events around their birth, that's how they chose the names for these two guys. So Esau is connected to the word for red or for hairy. But Jacob means what? Yeah, so depending on whether it's use it as a noun or, or a verb, Jacob's name, Yaakov, is connected to Akev or Akev, which means heel. And of course, he's named that because he's grabbing hold of his brother's heel. Now, that can, that can be interpreted as sort of innocently, you know, well, look, cute, you know, he's got a hold of, he's got of his brother's heel. And so let's name him heel. But the verb connected with this, akav, does not have any kind of innocent or positive meaning. So just like we might say someone is hot on somebody else's heels, they're chasing them. That's kind of the way this is used here, except it's used in the sense of a, a grasper or a, a pursuer or someone who trips somebody up or deceives somebody, supplants somebody, has all of those, those connections to it. So right from his birth, from his nativity, is also at least implied his future biography. He's a heel grabber. And we're going to see that throughout his life, he lives down to his name. He's trying to, as it were, even in his birth, grab his brother's heel so as to get ahead of him, to bring him down. Jacob's ultimate goal is to be first. And you can see that already then portrayed prophetically, as it were, in his birth. He's trying to grab the older brother by the heel, pull him back so that he can get ahead. And, we'll, and you see throughout Jacob's life, that's his goal. He wants to get ahead. He wants to make sure that he is the one who receives that which an accident of birth deprived him. So he's going to make sure that whatever needs to happen, whether by deceit or trickery or lies or taking advantage of someone else, that he gets ahead. Therefore, I like to view Jacob as the patron saint of all of those who are ambitious. He's a patron saint of all those who are ambitious. Now, in, in, in our current climate, it's, it's kind of a strange metamorphosis it's, it's un, that, that the word ambitious has undergone. Because for the most part, people view ambition today as a good thing. If someone is ambitious, you see a young man, he's ambitious, you're like, that, that, he, that kid's going to go places, he's ambitious. Traditionally, that's not the way that ambition was used. Ambition is an extremely negative word. Because ambition has nothing to do, well, ambition is not about simply striving to do your best. Ambition is about striving to make sure that you are first, that you are number one, and to hell with everybody else that gets in your way, because you're going to make sure that you are the one who is at the top. So ambition is very self-serving, at least traditionally the way that it's understood. And, and Jacob is a man of ambition. He's going to make sure that whatever needs to be done, whatever rules need to be broken, whoever needs to be deceived, even if it's his own family, that he's going to be the one who is at, at the top. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know about your own past, but for about the first 15 years of my adult life, I was extremely ambitious. That's what I wanted. I mean, I knew what I wanted, and by God, I was going to, I was going to get it, whatever, whatever it took. And just like everything, I mean, I had a mixture of negative and positive motivations. 
the positive motivations were I wanted to do my best, which is great. We should always try to do our best. I mean, there's no argument about that. None of us should just simply, you know, turn in uh, shoddy work, whatever our work might be. We should strive for excellence. No, no disagreement there. That's, that's good. That's virtuous. But at the same time, there was a negative side of that where it didn't really matter what I had to sacrifice in order to get there. You see? Whether, whether I needed to, uh, you know, break a few rules here and there, or, at least in my case, put up a front, th- this falsehood, in order that people could see that and find me more appealing or attractive for what I wanted. That was, that was the whole goal. So, well, that, that actually worked. It actually worked for me. I actually was able to get where I, get where I wanted to be. And uh, the, the end result of that, having achieved my ambitious goal, I lost everything. Because what was happening was, the more that I was able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, the more that pride began to balloon, balloon with them. And if you've read my story in Night Driving, you know what, you know what I'm talking about. We're going to see this afternoon, not this afternoon, but later this morning when we look at David, I think the same thing happened with him. David had, David had achieved his goal. He was king, he was where he wanted to be, and it was precisely at that moment that pride ballooned within him and lust ballooned within him. And as a result, he uh, not only sinned with regard to Bathsheba, but in a way more severely in the case of Uriah, and we see the rest of his life is beginning to to fall apart. David was ambitious, Jacob was ambitious, I was ambitious, and I don't think that's unusual at all, at least for for a lot of the men that I know, when we're younger especially, we think that what's going to ultimately give us meaning in life is what we achieve with regard to career. And what you discover, at least what most of us discover, is that when you think that you have finally reached that point, you discover how empty it is that it doesn't provide you with that fulfillment. It doesn't provide you with that, 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 that feeling like I have finally, I'm finally who I really should be. There's an emptiness in, in that achievement. And, and that's a great thing because it's a reminder that ultimately it's not what we achieve that's going to give us the identity and the meaning and the purpose in life. We receive that already when we were baptized. Because when, when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ and Christ provides us that completion, that fulfillment, that righteousness and perfection that we all desire. But for most of us, we're, we're looking for that elsewhere. We're looking for something that's going to make us feel as if we are fully who we were made to be. We gravitate toward finding that outside of the one who gives us that by grace, by mercy. But back to Jacob. So he's, he's born uh, holding on to his brother's heel, and therefore he is named Heel. So I like to call these guys, these brothers, Harry and Heel. So you got Harry, you got Esau, you got Heel, Jacob. We don't know much about their growing up years, but we do know uh, in the next episode what happens when they get a little bit older. This is the famous lentil soup episode. So just look down a few more verses. This is verse 27. The boys grew up. Esau is a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was, uh, my transition as peaceful man, 
uh, Ish Tom in Hebrew, probably something like he's more civilized. So <laughs> Esau's kind of the Daniel Boone. He's, he's the hunter. He's the, he's the rough guy. He's the man's man. He's out there in the field hunting, doing his thing. Jacob is at home. He's a shepherd, which is what it means by living in tents. That's a biblical idiom for a shepherd. So he's another kind of uh, uh, Esau. I mean, another kind of uh, uh, Abel figure. Verse 28 tells us that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Rebekah loved Jacob. Parental, fa- parental favoritism kicking in here. By the way, this is a very negative portrait of Isaac. Why does it say he loved Esau? Because he liked Because <laughs> he, he just liked venison. I mean, it's a pretty shallow reason for preferring one son over another. But, <laughs> so, but that's what it says. I mean, he, he, he liked that son because that son was a hunter and he brought home, he brought home food that, uh, that Isaac liked. So, I mean, I guess uh, everybody needs their reason for preferential treatment. That was Isaac's. Well, Jacob cooked stew. Esau came from, in from the field. He was famished. Esau says to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Esau comes across as a very gruff character who can't even really speak in the Hebrew. He comes in and he says, hey, give me some of the, the red, the red. It's basically the way it, it reads in Hebrew. He can't even, it's like he's not even speaking in a civilized sort of way. Just give me, hey, that stuff, that stuff, give me. That's kind of the way it sounds in Hebrew. Now his brother, uh, verse 31 immediately sizes up the situation and acts with a sort of lawyerly precision. He knows exactly how to take advantage of the situation. And so he says, first, sell me your birthright. Esau says, well, look, I'm about to die. So what use is the birthright to me? Jacob makes him swear. He swears. He sells his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gives Esau bread, lentil stew, eats and drinks, rises, go on his, goes on his way, and so Esau despises his birthright. This, is, this story is typically used in what sort of way? Who's the bad guy in this story? That's not the way that I usually hear it, uh, hear it described. In fact, the narrator himself says what? So Esau despises his birthright, right? And there's no doubt about that. Esau definitely, he was kind of a, he was exaggerating. Anyone who's about to die of starvation doesn't sit down, have a bowl of soup, get up and go on his way. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) So he was greatly exaggerating his situation. So he does despise his birthright. But what about his brother? He saw a moment to pounce. Yeah. He was again living. Yeah. He's an opportunist. What I heard someone say. He wants it more than anything. Yeah, he wants it more than anything. He he no doubt through his whole life had had wanted an opportunity in order to at least take a step toward getting what he wanted. Now, it's not enough that he has the birthright. He also needs the father's blessing. So it's kind of halfway there, we might say. But he's definitely taking advantage of this situation. He is he is using his brother's need in order to push himself forward. So rather than looking upon his brother, rather than saying, are you hungry? Well, let me, let me feed you. Let me take care of you. Instead of being his brother's keeper, he uses his brother. 
He takes advantage of this, this opportunity. So don't, in other words, don't let Jacob off the hook. Don't be saying, oh, Esau, you know, this guy doesn't even care about his birthright. He's selling it for a bowl of lentil stew. That's true. At the same time, look at what's happening here with, with Jacob. Now, the very next chapter is probably the most well-known part of, of Jacob's life. Not the very next, but the next episode about him in, in chapter 27. Which, uh, just for the sake of time, we will, we will kind of just summarize. So Isaac is old, and he doesn't know when he's going to die. And so he calls in his older brother Esau, his older son Esau, and says, it's time for me to pass on the blessing to you. And so Esau leaves. He takes his bow, he takes his quiver, he's going to go out, he's going to hunt, he's going to prepare the game the way that his dad likes it, come back and receive the blessing from him. Rebecca is eavesdropping. She hears this, and so she goes to Jacob and says to him, this is the situation, this is what I want you to do. I want you to help me prepare this meal. I want you to go into the closet of your brother and get some of his outdoorsy smelling camouflage clothing that he hunts in. And what is it, what is it that Jacob's worried about? Let's, let's look at that one particular verse. So this is Genesis 27, uh, 11. So his mom's kind of laid out part of the plan anyway. Notice what Jacob is concerned about. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. Then I shall be as a deceiver. I shall be as a deceiver in his sight, and I shall bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. What's Jacob concerned about? That's precisely it. He's, he's, he's not concerned with being a deceiver. He's concerned about getting caught. He's concerned, about getting caught. He's being, he's concerned about being exposed for who he already is. See, there's, <laughs> there's no shock here. He knows he's a trickster. He knows he's a deceiver. What he's worried about is everyone else realizing the same thing about him. Isn't, isn't this the, the, the typical fear of the sinner? We all know who we are, Right? You know who you are. I know who I am. And I know that we all don't want to talk about that thing about us that we know that we don't want everybody else to know about, but we know is, is true of who we are. So we know who we are. We know that we're tricksters, deceivers, lustful, having murderous thoughts, lying, whatever it is. We just don't want to get caught. We don't want this to be out there in an an unmissable sort of way. In other words, we prefer the lie to the truth. We prefer to, as it were, deceive the world and in a way deceive ourselves rather than embracing the truth of, of who we are. And so what is confession of sins? When we do confess our sins, what are we really doing? We're admitting who we are. In fact, uh, in, in Greek, to confess is homologeo, which means to say the same thing or to echo back. When you confess your sins, you're basically saying to God, what you have said about me, I now say about myself. 
I'm saying the same thing. God says, you're a sinner. I say, I'm a sinner. God says, you've broken all my commandments. I say, I've broken all your commandments. There's no great revelation that takes place in confession. We're simply saying, the sky is blue. The sun is hot. I'm a sinner. We're just simply confessing the truth. There's no great revelation here. Who we already are, we are now confessing back to God who's already spoken these words to us. Now, Jacob doesn't want to be perceived that way, just like none of us want to be perceived for who we truly are. But the real beauty of confession is that the more that we are able to embrace and confess, actually verbalize who we are, the more we're in the perfect situation for God to actually do his work in us. Because the more that we labor under the the self-deception that we are better than we actually are, the more that we are, as it were, full of ourselves, the less room there is for God to fill us with himself. So the more of me there is in me, the less room there is for Christ in me. So what's God always doing? He's pulling the plug out at the bottom of our souls, as it were, to, to empty out all of this ego, all of this me, in order that he can fill us with more of, more of Christ. Or to use some, the more traditional language, God is always burying us, killing us, in order that he might raise us up. He's pushing us down in order that he might lift us up in Christ. It's this continuous cycle within our lives of crucifixion and resurrection. God's putting us down. He's killing us. He's burying us in order that he might raise us up. So it's a constant repetition in our own lives of what happened at our baptism. We're living this baptismal life of burial and resurrection, burial and resurrection every day. So we don't so much, I think sometimes we have this this view of the Christian life as this, this progress. And the farther along we get, the better we get. Well, the truth is that the, the farther, the true progress is a, is a deeper realization of what's wrong with us and a deeper realization of how good God is to us in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. And the truth is, when we say we're sorry, are we ever completely sorry? I know I'm not either. Yeah. To, to, uh, to use probably one of Rod Rosenblatt's most famous uh, quotations, all our repentance is half-assed. It, 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 it is true. I mean, are we, are we sorry when we've done something wrong? Are we repentant? Do we confess? Uh, well, yes, we do. That's, that's what Christians do. Are we also... Uh, are we also sorry for getting caught? Well, yeah. I mean, the, our motivations for repentance are manifold. Some are good and some are not. But as we were, uh, we were just talking about, Clay and I were just talking about before we started this morning, God isn't so much interested in your repentance because that's not what motivates Him to forgive you. What motivates Him to forgive you is His love. So repent. But don't expect God to be so impressed with your repentance that he's like, you know what? You are so repentant, I'm going to forgive you. Because if that were true, then, re- then forgiveness would be basically be a commercial transaction. Here you go, God. Here's my repentance. And God's like, looks at it. He's like, that's, yeah, that's pretty good. Here, let me give you forgiveness in exchange. 
If it worked that way, then the cross of Christ is emptied. There was no reason for Christ to be crucified. All we had to do is simply offer our sacrifice of repentance, and then God would forgive us as a result of that. It's not the way it works. Well, all this goes back to Jacob and his, uh, his fear of being caught and what happens as a result of, of uh, every, everything that follows this. So you know the story, hopefully. Um, it actually works. He dresses up with the garments of his brother uh, so we can smell like him. And then he puts on the, the hairy skins and the hair on the back of his, of his neck, the, the goat hair. And then he brings in the, the goat meal that Rebecca has prepared. And what's Isaac's reaction? Does he believe it at first? Yeah, something, something doesn't really add up here. I can't see, but I can, I can smell. You smell like my older son Esau. And, and I can taste the game. This is, you know, tastes like my favorite meal. And, but you sound like Jacob instead of, instead of Esau. And notice that Jacob, Jacob lies repeatedly through this. He says, he says, I'm your older brother, your older son Esau, your firstborn. And then when Isaac says to him, well, how did you, how'd you get the game so quickly? He says, well, God, God provided this. So he's taken the Lord's name in vain. And in the end, what happens? Is he, is he found out before he receives the blessing? No, he, he receives the blessing. And you can't unbless. So once the blessing is spoken, it cannot be unspoken. You cannot be unblessed when you receive this. Which, for me, as I, as I read through this story, is extremely upsetting because the guy lies, he deceives, he tricks his father and his, and his, and his brother. He takes away that which, by right, is, is not his. He takes the Lord's name in vain. I mean, this guy has this long list of sins, and in the end, what happens? He gets the blessing. Well, where's the justice in that? Is there any justice in that? Is that fair? But God did more or less prophesize to Rebecca that's what was going to happen. He did, yeah. Just like he prophesied that his son would be crucified. And yet, did that excuse the chief priests and, and the Romans? Judas is still guilty. Judas is still guilty, yeah. I, th- I, I view this whole chapter here as just a real sordid family story about everybody knowing what they want and by God they're going to get it no matter what Rebecca's favorite she's going to make sure that that Jacob gets what she wants him to have and so you and Isaac he's got his favorite he's got Esau what I think is happening here is nothing more than God is taking a really sinful situation where everybody in one way or another is acting out of what they want and God is in his own divine way, bringing out of this what he wants. And in the end, Jacob receives the blessing of his father because he's dressed up in the clothing. He's pretending to be his older brother. And for me, that is, that is the key message here that you can take actually all the way into the New Testament. Because how do we receive the blessing of the Father. We're dressed up in the clothing of our older brother, of the firstborn of the Father, Christ. 
And so we are covered in his righteousness. We, we smell like Jesus, we might say. And so we receive the blessing of the Father as a result of that. That is the most important takeaway. Because th- this, is, this whole story, in, in all of its ugliness, is also the story that is repeated through the Scriptures of God always switching things around where he chooses the younger over the older. So you finally get to the New Testament, and it's not the first Adam that brings us a blessing. It's the last Adam. It's the second born of the two. It's Christ. Yeah, Dave. How is uh, Tamar and Judah and then Perez and Zerah related to this? You know, babies are more or less switched. Yeah. She deceived Judah. Right, yeah. Um, it, it's related to this. Yeah, it's related to this. Also, in the sense of you've got, if you think this this chapter is bad, then skip forward to Genesis thirty-eight, where you've got. So you don't remember that story. You have a daughter-in-law, who's been twice widowed, because God took out her first two husbands, and so she says, "I've got a plan. I will dress up as a prostitute, because I know that my father-in-law, who won't give me the third son." I know what kind of women he's looking for. How did she know this was going to work? She, dre- she knows how to dress up to make sure, and she knows where to be, so that when, when Judah passes by, he'll see her and want her and hire her, and that she can get impregnated by him so as to make sure that she, in the end, gets what she wants. Talk about an ugly family story. Yes, right, right. She takes these identifying markers. And in the end, to his credit, Judah says she's more righteous than I am. Yeah, she certainly is. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But her twins, one of her twins ends up in the genealogy, of course, of, of Jesus. By moving, forward, by moving forward. By switching. Yeah. Yeah. Jacob's included in the list. Yeah. Yeah. It's at the end, the end of his life. Yeah, there's, and uh, in fact, he even says, once he realizes he'd been tricked, he's, he says, and he will be blessed. Yeah, it's, so you can't undo this. There's a faithfulness there. Yeah, there was an acknowledgement that what's, what's been done cannot be, cannot be undone. The way, I, the way I like to connect it to, to our lives is you can't be unbaptized. There's, there, is, there is no ritual for the unbaptizing of someone. <laughs> so when the blessing is given... It, it's a done deal. There is, there is no turning back. You can't be unbaptized. You can't be unblessed. So God's work is perfect. It's objective. It, as I like to say, the, the water of baptism will not evaporate. It's there. The blessing has been, has been received. Now, just for the sake of time, let's, uh, let's skip forward to what is my favorite episode in the life of Jacob, and that is Genesis 32. So just kind of summarize what happens in his life after this. So he receives the blessing. Esau wants to kill him. In fact, the last recorded words of his brother are, after the death of my father, I will kill my brother Jacob. So mom knows about this. She collaborates with Isaac. They both decide it'd be best if Jacob just took off for a few days. <laughs> That's what Rebecca says. Why don't you go stay with my, with my brother Laban for a few days? Well, a few days becomes 20 years. So Laban, I mean, excuse me, Jacob goes into his exile. It's one of the many exiles in Scripture. 
He doesn't go to Egypt, as many exiles do. He goes the opposite direction. He goes northeast to stay with his uncle, who then becomes his father-in-law. You probably remember this part of the story. He falls in love with Rachel. Rachel has the older sister, Leah. On the wedding night, the, the father does the, the switch. Yeah, either, either because of it was a really dark tent or it was a, or it was a really thick veil or there was an overconsumption of, of alcohol. Uh, I, prob- I, I think it's probably all three, all three of these. Yeah. I mean, it was a wedding celebration and you're always going to have, you always had, you're going to have liquor, you're going to have alcohol at a wedding celebration. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. One of the, the greatest lines in all scripture. <laughs> in the morning, behold, it was Leah. You can just kind of imagine Jacob rolling over and uh, then, you know, finding his, his father-in-law and knocking on the door, as probably all of you did after your wedding night, and saying, <laughs> and saying, what is this that you have done to me? What is this that you have done to me? Well, of course, Laban has deceived the deceiver. That's, that's the irony here. The trickster has been tricked. Yeah. So he ends up, after he serves seven more years, well, he ends up with, with Rebecca as well, serves seven more years. And, and then you have, uh, I wish we had time to go into all of this. We just don't. But you have the, all the family growth where he has two wives, and then both these wives are in the baby-making competition. So they enlist their, their maidservants, and now he has two co-wives. And so he has a little harem going on here. And kids are born, sons are born, there's one daughter born. So you get to the end, after all these 20 years have passed, and Jacob has two wives, two co-wives, 11 sons, and at least one daughter that we know of. There's one son yet to be born, Benjamin. He'll be born after they return from, from exile. So Jacob leaves, as he, as in his own words, he says, I left with nothing but my staff in my hand. And now he comes back with a whole parcel of wives and kids. And not only that, but he's got vast flocks and herds as well. So he goes out basically with nothing, and he comes back with all of these possessions. He's really, he's, he's a wealthy, powerful man by, by this point of the story. Which again, is kind of part of this sub-theme of the unworthy one receiving more than he could ever have deserved from the hand of God. Even when God appears to him in that famous scene, you know, where you have the, the stairway, going up from heaven to earth, when God appears to him, this is right after he's deceived his father and his, he's stolen the, the birthright, the blessing from his brother. And you think at that point, God is finally going to lay into him. He's finally going to let him have what, what he has coming. And every single word out of the mouth of God is nothing but grace. It's very infuriating to me. <laughs> like, come on, God, tell him how he's done something wrong. And yet, that's not the way that God operates. And the reason I love it is because when I step back from the Jacob story, and I, and, I, and I stop looking at this as a window through which I look at Jacob, and I view it as a mirror by which I look at myself, I'm like, well, maybe I'm not so mad. Maybe this is actually good news, because it turns out that I've done the exact same thing that Jacob has done, and how has God dealt with me? He's dealt with me in mercy and grace. He's not dealt with me as I deserve because he dealt with me as I deserve. I wouldn't be standing here right now. I'd be in hell. That's where I would be. So thank God that he does not give to us what we deserve. Instead, he gives us what we do not deserve. The very definition of what of what grace is. 
But to get to this story, so Genesis 32, this is when he has come back. He's working his way back toward the promised land, and he's almost there. But he has one more thing that needs to happen to him. This is Genesis 32, beginning around verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man, kind of put that in quotes, a man wrestled with him until break of day. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, that is this, quote, man, touched the socket of Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Well, by the way, I have no idea how they wrestled all night. My son was a wrestler, and these guys, 16, 17, 18 years old, after about three minutes on the mat, they are wiped out. So this is a, an incredible wrestling match all night long. He dislocates Jacob's thigh. Still, Jacob won't let go. Verse 26, the man says, let me go. The dawn is breaking. Jacob says, nope, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And then he asks his name, and he says, my name is Heel. My name is Yaakov. And the man says to him, no longer shall your name be Yaakov, but Yisrael. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Yisrael is comprised of two words in Hebrew. The L part is God. El or Elohim means God. The first part is from Sarah, which means to fight, to strive, to wrestle. So Israel is God fighter, which in my opinion is the coolest name ever. Israel means the one who fights, strives, wrestles with God. We'll come back to that in just a second. Jacob asked him, what is your name? And he said, why do you ask? Which is a kind of a, a typical messenger of God response. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about my name. You worried about your name instead. Jacob called the place Peniel, which means face of God. That's why he says, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. The sun rises as he crossed Penuel. He was limping on his thigh. That's where I got the name for the book. That I, that I wrote about him, limping with God. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel did not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. So this whole story is remarkable in so many different ways. First of all, the, the most remarkable feature of it is that God condescends to come down in human form in order that he might grapple in the mud and sweat and no doubt blood with Jacob all night long. Which means that God, first of all, desires to be close to his people. It's, a, it's already a, a, a clear wink of the coming incarnation when God will actually take on our flesh. And that he's willing to, as it were, to use the language of, of Paul, he, he humbles himself by becoming like a human form in this case to, to wrestle with Jacob. But the most remarkable part of that is it who wins? Jacob. Now, how is that even fathomable, much less possible, for God and a man to fight, to strive, to wrestle, and for a man to overcome the God with whom he wrestles? There's, there's no way that can happen, and yet it does. I think this, this whole scene is a keyhole that you kind of bend down and you look through it, 
And what you see on the other side is a crucifixion scene where God finally comes down in human form and he fights with, he wrestles with humanity and humanity puts him up on a cross. We put him up on a cross and God dies. God loses on purpose, precisely in order that what? We might win. So that God says to all of us, your, your name is no, no longer going to be heal. Your name is going to be Israel. Because you have striven with God, you've fought with God, and you have prevailed. Which is precisely what God wants to happen all along. God loses in order that the sinner might win. In this case, and then finally in the, the ultimate case of God striving with us. And us striving with God. So this is a, a preview of the crucifixion. Another part of this. His name is changed from Jacob to Israel. Now, where, other, where are the other name changes in Genesis prior to this? Hmm? Abram, yeah. So Abram becomes Abraham, and Sarai becomes Sarah, yeah. Then you have Paul, Saul later on. Uh, after Abram becomes Abraham, every single time, without exception, he's called Abraham. When Sarai becomes Sarah, every single time after that name changed, without exception, she's called Sarah. When Jacob becomes Israel, yeah. In fact, the majority of the time in the book of Genesis, after his name is changed to Israel, he's called Jacob. It's like he, he doesn't receive a new name as much as an additional name. He's got the old name, he's a heel. And he's got the new name, he's the Godfighter. But who is he really? Is he Jacob or is he Israel? <laughs> yeah, he, he's, he's a mixture, but he's a cocktail of both, which I, I love the fact that that's the case because Jacob himself, despite all the blessings God gives to him, despite all of these, these wonderful name changes and the blessing of the firstborn and the, and the gift of family and, and all the riches and, and everything that he has, he's still Jacob. So he embodies what the Reformation referred to as simul justa sepicator. He's simultaneously saint and sinner. He's simultaneously Jacob and Israel. He's both. Now you will often hear that after this scene, after this wrestling with God and the name change, that this is a transformation of who he is. In fact, uh, in the... <laughs> Eric and I were, were talking on my, my drive the other day, and I was listening to those lectures on, on Genesis, and, and the, the scholar says that after this scene, Jacob's a changed man. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not a changed man. Because right after this, he has his reunion with Esau. You know, he's scared to death Esau's going to kill him, and so he sends all these gifts ahead of time to kind of placate his brother and, you know soften his hardness and maybe, you know, take away the, the thirst for revenge. All the while, Esau's like, what's all this stuff that you keep sending my way? 20 years have passed. I don't, I don't care anymore. I'm good. I'm, and he, and he, and the, Esau becomes the, the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He runs to meet the prodigal. He throws his arms around him. He weeps. He's, he's glad to have him home. And then Esau says, to paraphrase, to, to, to put it in, in the way we might say it, brother, I am so happy that you're back. Tell you what, come with me to my home 
and we can, you know, catch up. We can, we can party. We can, we can, we can live together. We can, we can, we can re, reunite what we never had. We can unite what we never had. We can be brothers. And what does Jacob say? He said, well, he says, it's great, but, uh, you know, we got, we got the, we got the kids and we got the flocks, so they're going to slow us down. So you go on ahead and we'll catch up with you. And Esau's like, well, I can lead some of my men. He's like, no, no, really, we're good. Just go on ahead and we'll, uh, we'll meet you there. And Esau's like, okay, all right, we'll see you there. And so he heads south to where he lives. And as soon as they go over the horizon, Jacob says, all right, pack up. We're going north. Opposite direction. This happens immediately after what we just read in Genesis 32. So don't tell me that Jacob is a changed man. He's still the deceiver. Now, why is that important? Because it doesn't matter where you're at in the Christian life. It doesn't matter like if you became a Christian today or yesterday, or if you've been a Christian your whole life, don't expect that at some miraculous point, because you have a a spiritual experience or because you feel like you're just really close to Christ, that ever after that, that you're going to be just, you and Jesus are going to be like this. I mean, you're going to be so close and you're going to be a changed man. You're never going to mess up again. That's not the way that life works. You're going to continue to struggle against the Jacob that's within you. You're, you are a child of God. You are covered by the righteousness of Christ and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. But guess what? You still have this sinful nature that's going to, it's going to bedevil you the rest of your life. So that's why the entire life of Christians is one of struggle. There, there's never a time when there's not going to be struggle, when there's going to be warfare, because the old man within us is con- the Jacob within us is constantly going to be warring with the new man that we are in Christ. And that's why I said earlier that growth in the Christian life is not the growth of us getting better and less sinful. Less Jacob. Growth in the Christian life is an awareness of the depth of the Jacob within us. And at the same time, a growing awareness of who we are in Christ, who he's made us to be. Peter did the same thing. Paul had to confront Peter. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's so important to remember that this, they're called saints, not because of the holiness of their own lives, but because the holiness that's been given to them in Christ. It's the reason that we're all, that we're all saints. There's, there's so much more that we could talk about with Jacob. And, and if you, I don't know how we're doing on uh, breakfast time here, but if you wanted to, to bring up something or a question or comment, then, then please do. You want to go to about 9.15? Or do you want to? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go on and on about Jacob because he's just a fascinating character. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll kind of hold it there and see what you have. Yeah, it's true. You know, uh, that's a great example of the way that God works with us. He's, he's the father who's wrestling with us. And he does let us win. Because he desire, we, we want our kids to... to to, to win, right? Because we love them, we care for them. And the same with, same with God. He lets us win, ultimately, by the death of His own Son, because what He desires is for us to win all that He wants us to have. So is the, is the, the limp that Jacob has in terms of your keyhole view of Christ, yeah. is this our sinful nature that's stuck with us? Yeah, we... Um, 
Well, that, the fact that our sinful nature, and the fact that throughout our lives, in, in, in various sorts of ways, we are, we're wounded, you know, whatever, whatever that might be. Uh, I like to use the language of that we're, we're called to be stewards of our scars, but you could say the same thing, stewards of our limps. God's, the way that God works in our lives is that He doesn't make us stronger, certainly not stronger in ourselves, he, as to use the language of Paul, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So he's, his goal is to make us weaker, weaker in the sense that we aren't dependent on ourselves. We're not looking to ourselves, but instead we're always pulled outward to look at Christ and, and his strength. So God will give us a limp or a scar or thorns in our flesh as these reminders of our own weakness and mortality. Because without that, we, we're blind. We're blind to our sinful nature. We're, we, we, we always want to think we're able to accomplish more than we're able to accomplish. And God's goal is always to, to, to make sure that we're leaning toward, toward Him instead of leaning, leaning on ourselves. And so God very purposely will oftentimes give us a wound or a scar or a limp. Um, none of us like that. None of us really want that. I mean, I never, ever pray, oh, please, God, give me a limp. I could really use another scar, God. Please, just, if you could crucify me one more time, that'd be great. Nobody wants that. And yet, we know that that's the way that, that God is going to work. Uh, he puts us as we're students in the theology of the cross. And so we are going to receive those wounds and nails and, and limps. But we know... <laughs> That God's ultimate purpose is not to hurt us. God's ultimate purpose is to shake us to an awareness of who we are in ourselves that we might look to Christ as the one who gives us what we need. That's the great irony here. You know, when Jacob comes back from exile in that next chapter, Genesis 33, he continually refers to Esau as Lord. My Lord, my Lord, I'm your servant. And then Esau refers to Jacob as brother. So it's not what you expect. Jacob has received the blessing of the firstborn, yes. Uh, but there's no evidence of Esau ever really serving Jacob. In fact, in Genesis 33, it's the exact opposite. Jacob gives all these gifts to his brother. It's like he's the servant and Esau is, Esau is the Lord. The true blessing is in the reception of the promise of the seed that Jacob will then carry on and give to his son Judah. So ultimately, that's what the, the blessing of the firstborn is about. The older is going to serve the younger, I suppose, just in the sense of He's forced to serve him in the sense of handing over to him the, the promise that we passed on to, to Judah. So it's not going to go through Esau's line. It's going to go through Jacob's line. Chad, is there any significance? Because I, I, I just reckon, I still can't, don't really grasp it. In the division of the sheep and the goats, with Jacob and Laban. I know Laban felt like he was Oh, yeah, the whole speckled, spotted mess. Yeah, the significance there, I think, is in the, in the bigger biblical narrative, what God constantly does, with one exception I can think of, is that when he puts people into exile, either as individuals or families or the nation, 
he brings them out enriched with the goods of those who oppress them. So we know that it happened in the case of Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai at that point. They go into Egypt, and uh, not to excuse Abram, but Pharaoh takes Sarah. And as a result, when God brings this couple back from exile, they're rich. When Jacob goes into exile, he brings him back rich. When the people of Israel are enslaved, oppressed by the Egyptians, they come out with the goods of the Egyptians. So there's, there is this idea that God takes the goods, the blessings that, that are given to the oppressors of his people, and then he gives those back to his own people in order that they might come home, come home rich. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Naomi. Yeah. When Naomi goes into her own exile with her family, it's because of uh, famine, of course. They're in, ironically, in Beth- Bethlehem means house of food or house of bread, and there's a famine in Bethlehem. So they have to go into, uh, into exile. But the exception then is that Naomi loses everything. She loses husband and then two sons while she's in exile. And so in her own words, she says, the Lord brought me back empty. I was full and I went out, the Lord brought me back empty. So that's the one ironic exception to that. And then, of course, she receives, she receives the fullness in Bethlehem. Now, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> she, she receives the blessing. She's filled again in Bethlehem, which, of course, is perfectly consistent with what the New Testament teaches us. That's the fullness of God is present in Christ in Bethlehem. Give us one question that we can discuss around the table when we go here. Jumping off point. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a good. There's a lot of different ways we could go with it. I guess what I would uh, encourage you to just think about in your own life is how God has called you to be stewards of scars and what what that looks like. So, stewards of your limp or stewards of your scars. What what would that mean with regard to your own life and then how you act in love toward those who are perhaps suffering or limping themselves? You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.